Section 27 of Come Rack, Come Rope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Come Rack, Come Rope by Robert Hugh Benson. Book 3, Chapter 8. Overhead lay the heavy sky of night clouds, like a curved sheet of dark steel, glimmering far away to the left with gashes of pale light. In front towered the twin gateway, seeming in the gloom to lean forward to its fall. Lights shone here and there in the windows, vanished and appeared again, flashing themselves back from the invisible water beneath. About, behind, and on either side there swayed and murmured this huge crowd, invisible in the darkness, peasants, gentlemen, clerks, grooms, all on an equality at last, awed by a common tragedy into silence, except for words exchanged here and there in an undertone, or whispered and left unanswered, or sudden murmured prayers to a god who hid himself indeed. Now and again from beyond the veiling walls came the tramp of men, once three or four brisk notes blown on a horn, once the sudden rumble of a drum, and once, when the silence grew profound, three or four blows of iron on wood. But at that the murmur rose into a groan and drowned it again. So the minutes passed, since soon after midnight the folks had been gathering here. Many had not slept all night, ever since the report had run like fire through the little town last evening that the sentence had been delivered to the prisoner. From that time onward the road that led down past the castle had never been empty. It was now moving on to dawn, the late dawn of February, and every instant the scene grew more distinct. It was possible for those pushed against the wall or against the chains of the bridge that had been let down an hour ago to look down into the chilly water of the moat, to see not the silhouette only of the huge fortress, but the battlements of the wall, and now and again a steel cap and a pike-point pass beyond it as the sentry went to and fro. Noises within the castle grew more frequent. The voice of an officer was heard half a dozen times, the rattle of pike-butts, the clash of steel. The melancholy bray of the horn-blower ran up a minor scale and down again. The dum-dum of a drum rang out, and was thrown back in throbs by the encircling walls. The galloping of horses was heard three or four times as a late-comer tore up the village street and was forced to halt far away on the outskirts of the crowd, some country squire, maybe, to whom the amazing news had come an hour ago. Still there was no movement of the great doors across the bridge. The men on guard there shifted their positions, nodded a word or two across to one another, changed their pikes from one hand to the other. It seemed as if day would come and find the affair no further advanced. Then, without warning, for so do great climaxes always come, the doors wheeled back on their hinges, disclosing a line of pikemen drawn up under the vaulted entrance. A sharp command was uttered by an officer at their head, causing the two sentries to advance across the bridge. A great roaring howl rose from the surging crowd, and in an instant the whole lane was in confusion. Robin felt himself pushed this way and that. He struggled violently, driving his elbows right and left, was lifted for a moment clean from his feet by the pressure around him, slipped down again, gained a yard or two, lost them, gained three or four in a sudden swirl, 
and immediately found his feet on wood instead of earth, and himself racing desperately in a loose group of runners across the bridge and beneath the arch of the castle gate. When he was able to take breath again and to substitute thought for blind instinct, he found himself tramping in a kind of stream of men into what appeared an impenetrably packed crowd. He was going between ropes, however, which formed a lane up which it was possible to move. This lane, after crossing half the court, wheeled suddenly to one side and doubled on itself, conducting the newcomers behind the crowd of privileged persons that had come into the castle overnight, or had been admitted three or four hours ago. These persons were all people of quality, many of them out of a kind of sympathy for what was going to happen were in black. They stood there in rows, scarcely moving, scarcely speaking, some even bareheaded, filling up now, so far as the priest could see, the entire court, except in that quarter in which he presently found himself, the furthest corner away from where rose up the tall, curved, and traceried windows of the banqueting hall. Yet, though no man spoke above an undertone, a steady low murmur filled the court from side to side, like the sound of a wagon rolling over a paved road. He reached his place at last, actually against the wall of the soldiers' lodgings, and found, presently, that a low row of projecting stones enabled him to raise himself a few inches and see, at any rate, a little better than his neighbors. He had perceived one thing instantly namely that his dream of getting near enough to the queen to give her absolution before her death was an impossible one. He had known since yesterday that the execution was to take place in the hall, and here was he, within the court certainly, yet as far as possible away from where he most desired to be. The last two days had gone by in a horror that there is no describing. All the hours of them he had passed at his parlor window, waiting hopelessly for the summons which never came. John Merton had gone to the castle and come back, each time with more desolate news. There was not a possibility, he said, when the news was finally certified, of getting a place in the hall. Three hundred gentlemen had had those places already assigned. Four or five hundred more, it was expected, would have space reserved for them in the courtyard. The only possibility was to be early at the gateway, since a limited number of these would probably be admitted an hour or so before the time fixed for the execution. The priest had seen many sights from his parlor window during those two days. On Monday he had seen, early in the morning, Mr. Beale ride out with his men to go to my Lord Shrewsbury, who was in the neighborhood, and had seen him return in time for dinner with a number of strangers, among whom was an ecclesiastic. On inquiry he found this to be Dr. Fletcher, Dean of Peterborough, who had been appointed to attend Mary both in her lodgings and upon the scaffold. In the afternoon the street was not empty for half an hour. From all sides poured in horsemen, gentlemen riding in with their servants, yeomen and farmers come in from the countryside, that they might say hereafter that they had at least been in Fotheringay when a queen suffered the death of the axe. So the dark had fallen. Yet lights moved about continually, and horses' hooves never ceased to beat, or the voices of men to talk, until he fell asleep at last in his window-seat. He listened always to these things, watched the lights, prayed softly to himself, clenched his nails into his hands for indignation, 
and looked again. On the Tuesday morning came the sheriff, to dine at the castle with Sir Amius, a great figure of a man, dignified and stalwart, riding in the midst of his men. After dinner came the Earl of Kent, and, last of all, my Lord Shrewsbury himself, he who had been her grace's jailer, until he proved too kind for Elizabeth's taste, now appointed with particular malice to assist at her execution. He looked pale and dejected as he rode past beneath the window. Yet all this time the supreme horror had been that the end was not absolutely certain. All in Fotheringay were as convinced as men could be, who had not seen the warrant nor heard it read, that Mr. Beale had brought it with him on Sunday night. The priest, above all, from his communications with Mr. Burgoyne, was morally certain that the terror was come at last. It was not until the last night of Mary's life on earth was beginning to close in that John Merton came up to the parlor, white and terrified, to tell them that he had been in his master's room half an hour ago, and that Mr. Melville had come in to them, his face all slobbered with tears, and had told him that he had just come from Her Grace's rooms, and had heard with his own ears the sentence read to her, and her gallant and noble answer. He had bidden him to go straight off to the priest with a message from Mr. Burgoyne and himself, to the effect that the execution was appointed for eight o'clock next morning, and that he was to be at the gate of the castle not later than three o'clock, if by good fortune he might be admitted when the gates were opened at seven. And now that the priest was in his place he began again to think over the answer of the Queen. The very words of it, indeed, he did not know for a month or two later, when Mr. Burgoyne wrote to him at length. But this at least he knew, that her grace had said, and no man contradicted her at that time, that she would shed her blood to-morrow with all the happiness in the world, since it was for the cause of the Catholic and Roman Church that she died. It was not for any plot that she was to die. She professed again, kissing her Bible as she did so, that she was utterly guiltless of any plot against her sister. She died because she was of that faith in which she had been born, and which Elizabeth had repudiated. As for death, she did not fear it. She had looked for it during all the eighteen years of her imprisonment. It was at a martyrdom, then, that he was to assist. He had known that without a doubt ever since the day that Mary had declared her innocence at Chartley. There had been no possibility of thinking otherwise, and, as he reflected on this, he remembered that he, too, was guilty of the same crime, and he wondered whether he, too, would die as manfully if the need for it ever came. Then, in an instant, he was called back by the sudden crash of horns and drums playing all together. He saw again the ranks of heads before him, the great arched windows of the hall on the other side of the court, the grim, dominating keep and the merciless February morning sky over all. It was impossible to tell what was going on. On all sides of him men jostled and murmured aloud. One said, She is coming down. Another, It is all over. Another, They have awakened her. What is it? What is it? whispered Robin to the air, watching waves of movement pass over the serried heads before him. The lights were still burning here and there in the windows, and the tall panes of the hall were all aglow as if a great fire burned within. Overhead the sky had turned to daylight at last, but there were gray clouds that filled the heavens so far as he could see. 
Meanwhile the horns brayed in unison, a rough melody like the notes of bugles and the drums beat out the time. Again there was a long pause in which the lapse of time was incalculable. Time had no meaning here. Men waited from incident to incident only, the moving of a line of steel caps, a pause in the music, a head thrust out from a closed window and drawn back again. Again the music broke out, and this time it was an air that they played, a lilting, melancholy melody that the priest recognized yet could not identify. Men laughed subduedly near him. He saw a face wrinkled with bitter mirth turned back, and he heard what was said. It was Jumping Joan that was being played, the march consecrated to the burning of witches. He had heard it long ago as a boy. Then the rumor ran through the crowd, and spent itself at last in the corner where the priest stood trembling with wrath and pity. She is in the hall. It was impossible to know whether this were true, or whether she had not been there half an hour already. The horror was that all might be over, or not yet begun, or in the very act of doing. He had thought that there would be some pause or warning, that a signal would be given, perhaps, that all might bear their heads or pray at this violent passing of a queen, but there was none. The heads surged and quieted, murmurs burst out and died again, and all the while the hateful, insolent melody rose and fell. The horns bellowed, the drums crashed. It sounded like some shocking dance measure, a riot of desperate spirits moved in it, trampling up and down as if in one last fling of devilish gaiety. Then suddenly the heads grew still, a wave of motionlessness passed over them, as if some strange sympathy were communicated from within those tall windows. The moments passed and passed. It was impossible to hear those murmurs through the blare of the instruments. There was one sound only that could penetrate them, and this, rising from what seemed at first the wailing of a child, grew and grew into the shrill cries of a dog in agony. At the noise, once more, a roar of low questioning surged up and fell. Simultaneously the music came to an abrupt close, and as if at a signal there sounded a great roar of voices all shouting together within the hall. It rose yet louder, broke out of doors, and was taken up by those outside. The court was now one sea of tossing heads and open mouths shouting, as if in exultation or in anger. Robin fought for his place on the projecting stones, clung to the rough wall, gripped a window-bar, and drew himself yet higher. Then as he clenched himself tight and stared out again toward the tall windows that shone in bloody flakes of fire from the roaring logs within, a sudden profound silence fell once more before being shattered again by a thousand roaring throats. For there in full view, beyond the clear glass, stood a tall black figure, masked to the mouth, who held in his outstretched hands a wide silver dish, in which lay something white and round and slashed with crimson. End of Book Three, Chapter Eight. Recording by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.